Psalm chapter 22, and hopefully we'll get down through chapter 28 tonight. Psalm 22. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your rich mercies and grace toward us. Father, we don't ever want to take your grace for granted. Lord, we want to understand the grunt behind your grace, the work that was done to accomplish our salvation and the blessings we've received in Christ Jesus. And tonight, Lord, as we begin these psalms, Lord, help us to see the Savior clearly. Help us to see Him in a, in a fresh light, in a, in a wonderful way. Help us to see Him not just as the Savior, but as our shepherd as well. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Help us see Jesus, Lord. We're so thankful that in the volume of the book you've written of him, and any page that we turn to, uh, we can see Jesus, and we can grow in our love and appreciation for him. We pray, Lord, that you'll do all those things in our heart tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Crucifixion was one of the cruelest forms of punishment and torture ever devised by man. The Jewish historian Josephus labeled it the most wretched of deaths. The origins of crucifixion are unclear. We know that it was practiced by the Persians somewhere around 500 B.C., but it was perfected about 100 years later by the ancient Romans. Psalm 22 is a fascinating chapter. Its preface reads, To the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. King David wrote this psalm around 1000 B.C. That's 500 years before the Persians. That's 600 years before the Romans. So catch this. A thousand years before crucifixion, before the crucifixion of Jesus, Psalm 22 becomes a narrative of a man who is experiencing this hideous, heinous torture called crucifixion. You see, on the cross, we know Jesus quoted from this psalm. Evidently, when David wrote it, his thoughts transcended his personal experience. David's thoughts eclipsed David's experience. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote prophetically about the suffering Savior, about his pain and his agony. In fact, Psalm 22 mentions 33 different details that were fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. This chapter conveys the grunt and the grief behind God's grace. You could say that the four Gospels provide us a perspective of the cross, the facts of the story, the when, the what, the where, whereas the New Testament letters give us a perspective on the cross, the why behind the crucifixion. But here in Psalm 22, we get a perspective from the cross. This chapter focuses on who? On the Savior Himself and His feelings on the cross as He went through this agony. Psalm 22, in my mind, is some of the holiest ground in Scripture. Well, verse 1 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, over 40% of the Old Testament references quoted in the New Testament come from the Psalms. That means to understand the New Testament, you really need to know the Psalms. And nowhere is that truer than here in Psalm 22, verse 1. On the cross there on Mount Calvary, our Lord Jesus quoted the first line of Psalm 22. 
Now, Jesus recited this line in Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Hebrew was the temple language. Jesus used the street language as he quoted verse 1. This moment in history constituted to me the most mysterious, the most monumental seconds and minutes in the history of the universe. The sin of all mankind was suddenly thrust on Jesus' innocent, sacrificial shoulders. You could say the lamb received his load. Jesus was God. We know that. He had lived forever with the Father in perfect, unbroken fellowship. Sin had never interrupted the Godhead's holy harmony. Jesus had lived a perfect, flawless life while on earth. But on the cross, the sin of the world was suddenly thrust on Jesus' shoulders. Imagine the shock. Imagine the horror and the terror that Jesus felt to sense a single speck of sin come upon his shoulders, let alone the sin of the whole world. But suddenly now on the cross, the sin of the rapist and the serial killer and the murderer and all the sins of all the world and all mankind are suddenly now placed on this innocent lamb. And what happens? Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Suddenly the father turns his back on the son in some way unknown to me. God became estranged from God. The Son was separated from the Father so that you and I could be united to Him. You know, God gave me a tiny glimpse of what He felt when He heard His Son cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was many years ago. Zach was two years old at the time, and he had contracted an infection that had gotten into his bloodstream. He was hospitalized so antibiotics could be administered intravenously. Well, before the nurse stuck the needle in Zach's little arm, she warned Kathy and I that Zach would know that we were in the room and he would wonder why we were allowing him to be hurt in this way. And she suggested that we leave. Well, Kathy's a nurse and so she, she understood this and so she returned, walked down the corridor back to our uh, hospital room. But I, I couldn't leave my little buddy, you know, he was right there and and so I stood right outside the door. I didn't leave the room, but I stood right outside that door just to be close to him. And I'm telling you, I'll never forget the moment when she stuck that needle in his arm and that two-year-old screamed out. It was a blood-curdling scream. He shouted, I want my daddy. Where is my daddy? I'm telling you, I could have clawed through that door with my fingernails. I could have reached up and grabbed it and jerked it off its hinges. And standing in that hospital corridor with tears rolling down my cheeks, my Father in heaven spoke to my heart and said, Now, Sandy, now you know what I endured when my son died for you. For isn't that what Jesus cried? My daddy, my daddy, why have you forsaken me? And yet, God stood outside of that door. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves me. I've never known God's love as strong as I did that day. God's love for you, His love for me, made the Father wait outside the door. Well, verse 1 continues, Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime. You do not hear and in the night season and am not silent. You know, the psalmist feels abandoned by God. He cries out, but God doesn't answer him. He has misinterpreted God's silence 
as God's absence. And we can do that, can't we? We can misinterpret God's silence as God's absence. God the Father had turned His back on God the Son when Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. But He was not abandoned, for the Father was faithful to Him. Jesus had done no wrong, and the Father remained faithful and delivered Him from death. The psalmist praises God, verse 3, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. You know, here's one of the byproducts of praise. Praise constructs a throne for God's presence. Whenever we praise God, we create an atmosphere that becomes conducive for God to work. He's enthroned in our praise. That's why it's always good when we praise God. That's why we should always have an expectation of what God might want to do in our hearts when we begin to praise Him. He says, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you were delivered and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Jesus was fully human, but when the weight of sin fell upon him, he felt less than a man. He felt more like a worm than a man. The Hebrew word translated worm is a derivative of a word that means crimson. It was a flower, a crocus, that was indigenous to Israel that produced a dye used to color the royal garments of the Israeli king. This flower was the home of a worm. And the dye was made by crushing the flower. And when the flower petals were crushed, the worm, of course, was crushed with them. For the king, though, to be clothed in royal robes, the worm, along with the flower, had to be crushed. And here the idea is that for us to be clad in the righteousness of God, Jesus was caught in that crushing. Jesus, too, had to be crushed so that we could be clothed and so that we could, we could be cleansed. Verse 7, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. Hearing these words, the jeers and the mockings that were hurled at Jesus while He hung there on the cross. But you are He who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast I was cast upon you from birth. You know, both the psalmist and the child from Nazareth had relied on God from an early age. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. You remember, God protected Jesus since his birth. He, he was with him all along. He told Joseph in a dream to take Jesus to Egypt to escape Herod's slaughter of the Bethlehem babies. And now Jesus, at the end of his life, once again, trouble is near. And he cries out to his father for help. He says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Imagine the stretching and the contortion that Jesus endured upon the cross. He says, my heart is like wax. It has melted within me. The loss of oxygen in Jesus' bloodstream caused his blood to grow thick and sluggish and heavy. This made his heart work overtime. This eventually caused his heart to, to rupture. You know, Jesus literally died of a broken heart. We know that when they stuck the spear in his side, out flowed blood and water. The only time the blood and water separates in such a way is in the event of a ruptured heart. 
He says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a cracked piece of dried pottery. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. You remember on the cross, Jesus' throat was so parched that they took a wet rag to moisten his lips so that he could utter his final words. He says, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And of course, they did it with nails. Iron spikes, to be exact. The victim of the crucifixion suffered excruciating pain. He was attached to a wooden scaffold by seven-inch iron spikes driven through his hands and through his feet, the most sensitive nerve uh, centers on our body. And then the victim's body weight rested on those wounds, and each time he went to get a breath, he would have to push up on those wounds in his wrists and in in his ankles. Listen to Dr. Truman Davis describe what the crucified victim endured from a medical point of view. He says, as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed. The intercostals, or the muscles that form the rib cage, they're unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Again, each time Jesus pushes on his wounds to draw breath, incredible pain ricochets through his body. Now, there are two ways that a victim of crucifixion died. One was through suffocation. This usually was hastened by the executioners. They would break his legs so that he could no longer push up. And therefore, he suffocated to death. The second way, though, was through cardiac arrest, as I've mentioned. The blood uh, lacked oxygen, so it would get heavy and it would get sluggish. And as it flowed into the lower extremities, the pulse rate would double. The victim's blood pressure would be cut in half, and eventually the heart would just overwork and explode within the chest. And when Jesus came to break Jesus' legs, he was already dead. Not one bone was to be broken, the Scripture said. That's why we know Jesus died of a broken heart. He endured crucifixion for you and for me. Verse 17 says, I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. Jesus is here stretched out. He's stretched out naked upon the cross. He can count all of his bones. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. He looks down and there he sees the Roman soldiers rolling dice for his cloak. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me, O my strength. Hasten to deliver me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. You know, the Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion. And here wild animals are seen as scavengers that would feed on a corpse. After the crucifixion, When they laid the body of Jesus in the mouth of that grave and closed the stone, in essence, they laid him in the lion's mouth. And if the wild animals could have eaten his body, they would have. But they did it, for the grave had no claim on him. Jesus was innocent of wrongdoing. When he cried out to God to save him, the Father answered, he was resurrected. And it's interesting that at this point in the psalm, the tone changes. Now from crucifixion, to celebration. Verse 22 gets quoted of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. 
In other words, today Jesus is alive and well. And guess where he visits? He comes and he hangs out with people who are worshiping God. He says, I will declare my name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Where where does Jesus come on Sunday mornings? Right here to Calvary Chapel. He comes and he sits in the midst of our assembly. He praises God with us. He hangs out with his people. He promised his people that where two or three would gather together, he would be there in their midst. He says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. For you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken, but he was not forgotten. The Father heard his prayer and recognized his righteousness and his sacrifice was accepted. And Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father as payment for our sin, approved by God. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The psalmist sees the day when all the nations of the earth will worship this risen Lord. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before Him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive, a posterity shall serve Him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has done this. And it's interesting in the Hebrew, this phrase, that He has done this is a single word. It's the word finished. Remember, that's what Jesus cried out on the cross. It is finished. Tetelestai. It is finished. It's a done deal. All that needed to be done has been done for you and I to be right with God. It was accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. And our role is just to believe. It's just to believe. Well, Psalm 23 is a favorite and a familiar psalm. The shepherd's psalm may have been written uh, in David's younger years while he was a shepherd there keeping his father's flocks just outside of Bethlehem. This song is in three stanzas. The sheep's provision, the sheep's protection, and the sheep's promotion. We see them grazing in the field. We see them passing through the gorge. And we see a gift of glory given to them. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, David knew that being a shepherd was an exhausting vocation. It required vigor and vigilance. And the main challenge for the shepherd is the sheep themselves. You know, lions are known for their strength. Deer are known for their speed and their steady footing. But sheep are renowned for what? For their stupidity. That's right. You know, if one walks off a cliff, all the others will follow him right off the cliff. As a matter of fact, it happened recently. In July of 2005, in Istanbul, Turkey, a group of Turkish shepherds met to eat for breakfast. While they were inside the cafe, they saw a horrible thing happen. Through the glass, they could see 1,500 of their sheep jumping off the same cliff 
to their death just outside of the, the cafe. The local newspaper reported, in the end, 450 dead animals lay on top of one another in a billowy white pile. The tragedy cost the owner of the herd $100,000. I'm telling you, sheep are dumb. It's impossible for them to survive without the vigilant, on-the-job shepherd. David admits that he's like a dumb sheep. He's thankful that the Lord is his shepherd. Aren't you thankful that the Lord is your shepherd? You know, in Psalm 20 and 21, the Lord is a soldier. In Psalm 22, the Lord is seen as the Savior. Now here in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Remember Jesus in John 10 verse 11 told us, I am the good shepherd. Well, the psalmist begins, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I like how the little boy quoted verse 1. He told his mom, the Lord is my shepherd, I've got all I want. Well, that's not a bad interpretation here. David is saying that the Lord has satisfied all of his needs. His physical needs, his spiritual needs have been satisfied by his shepherd. He says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You know, it's impossible to make a sheep lie down. Only a contented sheep will lie down. Sheep rest and relax only when four things are true. They have to be free from fear, free from friction, free from flies, and free from famine. In other words, if they feel safe and they're at peace and they're not being pestered and they got full stomachs, then and only then will they be able to lie down and relax. And isn't this how Jesus shepherds us? He brings us into these same places. He feeds us in this same way. You know, it's interesting. Neither will a sheep drink from a river or a stream with running water. It has to be still water. There can't be any turbulence. Sheep need restful and peaceful surroundings. And in our hearts, Jesus wants to lead us into peaceful places. He wants to lead us into green pastures where we're free from fear and free from flies and free from friction and free from famine. He wants to lead us beside still water where we can relax and we can be at rest. Also keep in mind that the pastures in Palestine, they weren't these flat grazing lands like we find out in the plains of Texas. Israel is covered with mountainous terrain, and so pockets of pasture were difficult to find. That's why a shepherd had to lead his flock. The Lord knows the pastures that we need. He knows how to find them. They may be hard to reach sometimes, and it may take a while for us to arrive, but Jesus knows how to get us there. He knows how to Bring us into those peaceful places where we can rest and we can find strength. Notice too, it says, He restores my soul. Literally, He lifts up the downcast. Here's a picture of a downcast sheep. Anyway. <laughs> you get a little downcast when you watch the news, don't you? Anyway, I, I thought that was great, but maybe you didn't. The phrase downcast originally referred to a sheep that had flipped over on its back. And for a sheep, this is devastating. Because once a sheep has flipped over on its back, it can't right itself on its own. Apparently, the blood rushes from its legs. 
and it becomes immobile. And the shepherd has to massage its legs and get the blood flowing again, stimulate the blood flow, and then and only then can the sheep be lifted back up and put on its feet. You know, likewise, there are times when, when we fall down and we can't get up. We can't get up on our own. We need some help. And it's great to know that we have a shepherd who restores our soul, who lifts up the downcast, who doesn't just leave us there to be eaten by the jackals. He, does, he knows what it takes to massage us and to get the blood flowing again and get us back up strong and get us back up on our feet. He makes us upright again. We're told he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. You know, sheep are not just stupid, they're stubborn. They refuse to be driven. They have to be led. They have to be coaxed. A sheep has to be drawn by the shepherd. Once there was an Israeli tour guide who saw a shepherd with a flock, and he pointed this out to his tour group. He said that, uh, that the shepherd always leads the flock. The shepherd never drives the flock. Well, later he saw another man uh, walking along the path who was actually whipping and beating the sheep. And the tour group, you know, they were confused. They felt misled. They said, wait a minute, was our God wrong? Seems that this is a shepherd who's now driving his sheep. Well, later the guide found the man, and he said to him, he said, wait, what were you doing back there? You know, shepherds don't drive their sheep. They lead their sheep. What, what's wrong with you? And that's when the man replied, I'm not a shepherd. I'm a butcher. Hey, Jesus is the good shepherd. He wins our trust, and He coaxes us, and He loves us, and He draws us through bands of love, the Scripture says, and we follow Him willingly. Satan is the butcher who drives us against our will and drives us to our slaughter. Verse 4 tells us, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, at times, the best pasture is in the uppermost slopes. And the shepherd leads his sheep through the valleys to get to these mountain peaks. He navigates dangerous terrain, these, these narrow ravines and these steep ledges. And at times, the flock is one single step from death. Yet the shepherd is there with his staff to grab the sheep that's about to slip or to steer back the sheep that's straying off course. You know what a shepherd's staff looks like. has a hook at the end of it so that it can reach out and grab the sheep and pull the sheep back into the path. A shepherd's rod, by the way, was a weapon to fend off predators. And here the Lord promises to guide us through his rod and through his staff. There are times when Jesus leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And don't, don't overlook this terminology here. For the follower of Jesus... Death is but a shadow. Notice the valley of the shadow of death. And, and you know that a shadow is harmless. Don't be afraid of your shadow. You know this. The shadow of a dog doesn't bite, does it? The shadow of a gun doesn't shoot. The shadow of a, shadow of a sword doesn't cut. Realize death is but a shadow. It doesn't take our life. God takes our life. All death does is usher us into a better, eternal life. Remember, Jesus is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. 
Verse 5, and you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. At the end of our trials, God promises to exalt us in the presence of those who might meant to harm us. We'll experience this sweet vindication. He says, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. In the end, God honors us and pours out his blessing upon us. We're not just full. Notice, we're sloshing over. I like that. Don't just pray for God to fill you up. Pray that he'll fill you to overflowing. Pray for the overflowing cup, the sloshing over cup. Those are the blessings he wants to pour out upon you. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The psalmist says that the man who follows his shepherd ends up hounded by happiness his entire life. Can't get away from it. Goodness, mercy follows him, hounds him. Stalks him the rest of his life. I don't mind being stalked by goodness and mercy. Did you hear about the couple with three kids? They thought that they would name their children surely goodness and mercy. But then they worried they'd follow them the rest of their life. And and they decided not to name them that. Well, Psalm 24 is also a psalm of David. It begins, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. You know, one of America's most treasured beliefs is the right to private property and individual freedom. Our Constitution protects these rights against government intrusion. And this is fine as far as it goes. But understand with God, there's no such thing as private property and individual rights. Notice here, the world and those who dwell therein They belong to God. They are created and are accountable to their creator. God owns everything. He owns everyone. He then asks, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in His holy place? You know, we all belong to God, but we fall short of His glory. Therefore, who among us is worthy to enter His presence and to dwell in His temple? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Here's the cover charge. You want to get into God's presence? Here's the cover charge. You're allowed in if your hands are clean and if your heart is loyal. In other words, the filthy dealer, the man who's been flirting with other gods, he's the one who gets barred outside. He's not admitted. We're told he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Pause and think about that. Despite clean hands and a loyal heart, David still acknowledges that our righteousness and our salvation are gifts from God. And he desires for his nation, all Jacob, to seek after God. The remaining verses of the song are thought to have been sung by David as he danced in the streets when he brought the ark up to the city of Jerusalem. Some people also see in these verses a prophetic picture of the day when the risen Lord Jesus ascended into heaven with victory in his hands. And it's also intriguing that Psalm 24 is one of the psalms used by the Jews in their daily liturgies. You might want to jot this down. On Monday, they meditate on Psalm 48. On Tuesday... Psalm 82. On Wednesday, Psalm 94. On Thursday, Psalm 81. 
On Friday, Psalm 93. The Sabbath psalm is 92. And on Sunday, they meditate on this psalm, Psalm 24. You remember Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem on Sunday, on Palm Sunday. Psalm 24 may also reflect parts of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Well, verse 7 tells us, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, for the King of glory shall come in. We, we sang about that tonight, didn't we? Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Psalm 25 is a psalm of David's repentance. But it's not a gloomy confession. You see, real repentance is laced with hope and with faith. This is one of nine psalms that are an acrostic. Each verse, of course, corresponds with a, with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The acrostic form helped the Jews as they memorized the Psalms, as they were able to recite them. They had this, you know, the acrostic uh, construction in their mind. Here are the other acrostics, if you want to, if you want to note this. It doesn't come up in the English, but but if you're reading in the Hebrew, you'd see it. Psalm nine and ten together form an acrostic. Psalm twenty-five, thirty-four, thirty-seven, one hundred and eleven, one hundred and twelve. 119, the longest psalm, and 145 are all acrostic psalms. Verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Notice, waiting on God is never a waste of time. I hope you understand that. You never waste time when you wait on God. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Notice David asked the Lord, show me, teach me, lead me. He's never complacent. He's always learning. He's not always on the go. At times, God requires him to wait, but he's always on the grow. You might not always be on the go, but you can always on the grow. You can always be learning. Lord, what are you saying to me? In Jesus' school of discipleship, there are no short semesters. There are no cram courses. There are no cliff notes. Spiritual maturity takes time, and it takes persistence. It takes years of asking, show me, Lord. Teach me. Lead me. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Notice, mercy is not a new method for God. Mercy is not a New Testament invention. God is known from his, for His mercy and His kindness. Notice, from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. And oh boy, how many of us have prayed that prayer? Oh, Lord, don't remember the sins of my youth. Please forgive me for those stupid things I did as a kid. Whenever my kids say, come on, Dad. What did you do when you were a kid? Yeah, I just cut them off right there. I tell them, look, if you guys don't turn out better than me, 
it's going to be a terrible, terrible waste. Don't, don't shoot your sights so low that you wanted to be like me. I want you to be better than me. You know, my generation did some sinful, stupid stuff. Please, Lord, don't recall the sins of our youth. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. Notice, the Lord knows that, that a lot of us sin, a lot of our sins, and a lot of especially our youthful sins, is the result of ignorance and sheer stupidity. And that's why he teaches sinners in the way. I like that. God doesn't just forgive us of our sin, or he doesn't just condemn us of our sin. No, no. God forgives, but then he even does more than that. He takes the time to bring the repentant sinner alongside him under his wing and instruct him and teach him. He doesn't just tell us what to do, but he shows us how to do it. We're told the humble, he guides injustice, and the humble, he teaches his way. God teaches sinners. But notice it's the humble that learn from God. If there's pride in your heart, if there's arrogance in your heart, you won't learn. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, to such as keep His covenant and His testimonies. For Your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him shall He teach in the way He chooses. He Himself shall dwell in prosperity, and His descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. I love that. Fear the Lord, He will whisper to you, his secrets. Do you want to know God's secrets? You want to know His mysteries, mysteries, mysteries? I do. I, I want to become the 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 that are dear to her, to her, to think things that are that are special, special to Him, to Him to share those things with with me. Well, how do you how do you put yourself in position? You fear the Lord, the Lord, Lord. He'll show show you the secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. For he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself self, self to, to me and have mercy. Me, me, me. Desolate and afflict, flick, flick, flick. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Well, Psalm 26 may have been written by David while he was on the run from Saul. Remember for a time, David sought refuge among Israel's enemies, the Philistines. He had been rejected by King Saul, therefore he turned to the king of Gath. And the Philistine king gave him refuge in the city of Ziklag. David used Ziklag as a base of operation. And from there he conducted raids on other Philistine cities. Then he would lie to the king of Gath about what he had done. Yet apparently David's countrymen, they assumed that he had committed treason. What's David doing allying himself with the king of Gath? Why has David forsaken God? And they were stirring up all kinds of slander and all kinds of lies against David. Well, he prays in response to this here in Psalm 26. He says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. 
Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. David has not, and he will not worship another god. He has, he has to search his heart for any treachery, for he knows he's innocent. He's done nothing but walk in truth. And here he asks God to vindicate him. He would never ally himself with God's enemies. He would never bow down to the gods of Baal or Dagon. Verse 6, I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. I mean, David had been accused of consorting with the enemy, of hanging out in evil places. But he reaffirms, no, no, no. My favorite place is the Lord's habitation. I like hanging out where God's glory dwells. You know, this is what I examine when I want to know what's behind a person's veneer, behind their facade. If you want to know what's really in their heart, look at where they frequent. Look at where they hang out. If he loves God, he'll love the habitation of God's house. He says, Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. Though David was a fugitive from his homeland, though he was unable to worship in the temple, it was still his love and his desire to be in God's presence. And he has hope. He looks forward to standing again in the congregation of God. Well, Psalm 27 is another psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the, when the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should arise against me, in this I will be confident. What faith is that? Wow. Though an army camps against David, he will not fear. He is never outnumbered. Always remember, one plus God equals a majority. Here's David's confidence. One thing have I desired of the Lord. Notice this. It's not 50 things I have dabbled in. 75 things I've thought about. 60 things I've pursued. Notice this. One thing I have desired of the Lord. That will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. You know, all the great men and women of God down through the ages have had one commonality. They have all been people of single, solitary passion. One goal dwarfs all of their other concerns. They want to know God. They want to dwell in His presence. They want to behold His beauty. They want to inquire of his wisdom. Thomas Akempis wrote, 
It is too small and unsatisfactory. Whatever you bestow on me, apart from yourself. God could give him kingdoms and treasures, but without God himself, it would all be worthless to him. A man named George Matheson once prayed, Whether you come in sunshine or rain, I would take you into my heart joyfully. You are yourself compensation for the rain. It is you and not your gifts I crave. He would rather have God with the rain than a host of sunny days without Him. Do you feel that same way? Do you desire one thing? One thing are you seeking after? To know the Lord. And yet here's our problem. We get distracted, don't we? We get bored with life. For some reason, we always have to have something tangible to be playing around with, to try to, try to pursue. You know, we've taken up golf, or, or we got a new bass boat, or we've decided to start deer hunting on Sundays, or, oh, oh well, you know, I'm selling Tupperware now, or I just bought a new gym membership. Or, and, and there's nothing wrong with these activities per se, unless they're being substitutes for what really matters. David had one occupation. He said, one thing I have desired. He seeks after God. He wants to know God. He wants to see God's beauty. He wants to inquire of God's wisdom. I like this word inquire, by the way. The Hebrew word means to dig or to plow. David says, I dig God. You know, I want to dig into God. I want to plow into God. I want to get to know God and in God's ways. This is my one desire. He says, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall not set set me high upon a rock. He shall, I'm sorry, he shall set me high upon a rock. There was a young pastor who was traveling on foot across England's most difficult countryside near the Cheddar Gorge when a storm struck. There he found a shelter under a rock overhang. And in the midst of the storm, he penned this song. His name was Augustus Toplady, and he wrote these words, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. His song became a famous hymn, Rock of Ages, you've sung it. Here David writes similar words. His life is full of treacherous terrain. He's faced many storms, and here David asks God, Hide me upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in His tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. In the Hebrew, the word face and the word presence are the same. Thus, to seek God's face is to seek His presence. David longs to be aware of God. Do you you long for that? To to have the sense of God's presence in your life? To be aware of God wherever you go, whatever you do, to have His presence there around you? This is David's desire. And notice, too, David's desire is a response to God's invitation. I think this is important. He says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. You know, God is always the initiator. He always is. His spirit is the one who prompts us and and stirs up within us a desire to know him, to seek his face. 
He invites us to break up life's monotony. He invites us to get above the boredom, to get a little taste of heaven. And when He invites us, when He puts that tugging on our heart, how do we respond? Do, do, do we grab a book or do we get on the phone or do we go watch TV? Or when we feel that tugging, do we respond to that? When He says, seek my face, do we say, your face, Lord, I'll seek? Do we respond to His invitations? Or are we too busy? Are there other things we'd rather do? Or do we come enthusiastically and reply, your face, Lord, I will seek? Verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. And here David is pondering the worst case scenario. Even if his closest human ties begin to unravel, God is still going to be faithful to him. Isn't that a a great hope? Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Oh, a lost heart is the result of an abandoned hope. You know, lose hope and you'll lose heart. If you're sure of the outcome, though, if you know that your future includes God's goodness, then you can withstand anything for the moment. Mm -hmm. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. When David got his eyes off the Lord, he lost heart. But when he waits on the Lord, when he keeps his eyes on the Lord, God strengthens him. Well, Psalm 28 is also a psalm of David. It begins, To you I will cry, O Lord my God, my rock. I'm sorry. To you I will cry, O Lord my my rock. Reminds me of the Irish preacher who said, Christ is the only solid rock. All others are shamrocks. The Irish preacher. He says, To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Once there was a godly lady who was lying on her deathbed. One of the bystanders in the room thought that they were about to lose her. And and she was about to die. And he commented, he said, she's sinking fast. And that's when the lady sort of lifted herself up in her bed and she replied, you can't sink through a rock. I like that. When your life is built on the solid rock, you'll never sink. He says, hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Isn't that nice? It's a good thing to lift up your hands toward God's holy sanctuary. When you lift up your hands, you're you're both surrendering your will and you're also reaching out to Him. It says good things. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. David asked God to protect him from the hypocrites, from those who seek peace or who speak peace but seek blood. You know, that, that's why he's saying, Lord, protect me from the hypocrites around me. And that's why he's reaching up, he's lifting up his hands and he's reaching up his hands to God. Have you tried this yet in your worship? Have you tried to lift up your hands? 
I know some of you come from different backgrounds where that's not practiced. But you know what? Take a risk one day. Just, just go for it. Just live on the wild side one Sunday morning. Come into the sanctuary and lift up your hands to, to the sanctuary of God. See, see what, what a liberating experience it is just to be able to reach out to God and surrender your will to God. It's a great thing. Verse 4, David asked God to judge the wicked. He says, give to them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the operation of His hands. He shall destroy them and not build them up. You know, Psalm 28 is called an imprecatory psalm. The word imprecate means to curse. And this is one of several psalms where the Holy Spirit inspires the writer to basically call down a judgment and utter curses on God's enemies. This style of psalm teaches us many lessons. I think, for one, it shows us that God has empathy for the heart that desires righteousness and fairness. Now, certainly, we need to couple mercy with our sense of justice. But it is a godly desire to want justice served. There you go. We should want God to right wrongs. We should desire God to punish evil, should we not? I mean, if our hearts are close to God, we'll want justice served. We'll, we'll want evil punished. Of course, we don't want our evil punished. That's why we need to couple justice with mercy. We want mercy and grace as well. And we want to show mercy and grace on others. We seek their salvation. But, but there's nothing wrong with us having this just desire. It's a holy desire. And these Psalms, um, it, teaches us, it teaches us that God is empathetic toward that desire. Of course, these Psalms also teach another very obvious lesson, and that is that God will judge sin. Not always when it's committed, but in His time and in His ways, God always judges sin. C.S. Lewis once wrote, If the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans, it was because they took right and wrong more seriously. And, and you've got some really uh, vicious uh, psalms here where the psalmist cries out for, for swift justice. Verse 6 tells us, Blessed be the Lord, because He has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise Him. The Lord is their strength, and He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. Notice we are God's inheritance. Gold means nothing to God. You know, in heaven, He uses gold to pave the streets. It's nothing more than shiny asphalt. In heaven, beautiful pearls are nothing more than wrought iron. He uses them to make the gates. No, God's inheritance, God's treasure is His people. We are His special treasure. He saves and He blesses and He shepherds and He carries and He shelters and He makes strong His people. And there we have uh, Psalm 28. Well, we'll pick up Psalm 29 next time. And so you'll have a couple of weeks to read 
Psalm 29, and read through old Psalm 36 or so. That's where we'll try to, try to go next time.